Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We retain the ashes because Manchester retained its wet weather. It's triggered an English whinge fest like you wouldn't believe. But before the Aussies do too much nan-nan-nan-airing, at the Poms. I think there's a moral victory to be had by someone still in the fifth test at the Oval. We won the first two tests in this series fair and square. England won the third fair and square. And let's be honest, they dominated us in this one. And uh, I think the Aussies have got some thinking to do before that fifth test at the Oval. We're going to talk to Bryce McGain soon. Of course, Bryce is uh, a commentator with SEN Cricket, former Aussie leg spinner. We'll get his take on it. Should David Warner play in the fifth test? How does he rate Pat Cummins' captaincy so far, particularly in the third and fourth tests? What do you think? You can have your say on the temper at Bedshed text line on 0487 736 736, or you can give us a call on the open line on 13 12 55. Overnight, our Aussie swimmers dominated at the world titles in Fukuoka. Four gold medals, our best ever night at a world swimming championship. Ariane Titmus, what a legend. She stared down Katie Ledecky and Summer McIntosh in the women's 400 metres freestyle. She not only beat them, she won in world record time. Sam Short, won the men's 400 metres and our men's and women's four by 100 metre relay teams both won gold. Great effort by the men to topple America and Italy. And the women, well, they absolutely dominated and streeted the field, won that in world record time, anchored by Emma McKeon with Molly Callahan coming off the blocks first. On to footy. And if Collingwood versus Port Adelaide was the game of the season. West Coast versus Carlton and Fremantle versus Sydney were games that reflected the seasons of the WA clubs at the weekend. West Coast can't compete on the road. Fremantle can't finish because they can't get started. So thanks to Izuzu, and you can live your own way in the Izuzu D-Max. Here are four points to four-wheel drive you to work on the games at the weekend involving our AFL club. Point one for West Coast... Luke Shuey needs to call time on what has been a great career at the end of the season. Carlton on Saturday was Shuey's 247th AFL game. It was his ninth of the Eagles' 18 games this season, and he's been subbed out of three of them. He is 33. He will be 34 next year, and the evidence of the past three seasons says Shuey's body is no longer up to the week-to-week rigours of AFL football. He has been a truly great player, a very good captain. Fingers crossed the Eagles can find a way to get him to 250 before the end of the season, despite this latest hamstring injury. But West Coast cannot continue to claim bad luck with injuries if they continue to back in veterans whose bodies are bad bets. There comes a time when bad luck is really bad list management, and if the Eagles attempt to press on with Shuey now, they are past that point. 
At his best, Shuey's best was the best of this group of West Coast players, and his 2018 grand final was one for the ages. A 34 disposal, 8 inside 50, 9 clearance, 8 tackle, 19 contested possession masterpiece. It sits comfortably alongside Peter Matera's five goals off a wing in 1992 as the greatest grand final performance by any West Coast player. But there is a time for everyone. Shuey's time is up. Point two, still on West Coast. Adam Simpson might have two years of contract left to run, but football and football coaches should never flirt with form, and that applies even when the only form applicable is bad form. Adam Simpson's decision to send Brady Hoff to Charlie Curnow on Saturday was a bad decision. It pitted an undersized, inexperienced 20-year-old in his 27th game against one of the best, most athletic, powerful tall forwards in the AFL. Yes, Simo had lost Jeremy McGovern well before the game and Tom Barris just before the game. And yes, Hoff has been in terrific form and he's a strong character. He's the sort of player who is likely to put his hand up for the role. But he wasn't the right man for this job and particularly not in the situation West Coast are facing. People criticised Simo for dropping anchor and sandbagging West Coast last away game in Brisbane. They shouldn't have. He shut the game down and avoided the sort of disaster the club had suffered at the SCG a couple of weeks earlier, a 171-point record club loss that threatened to hemorrhage the Eagles. On Saturday, he flirted with the same sort of disaster again, and he flirted with the development of one of the club's more impressive youngsters. Going forward, the only question the Eagles board has to answer when they look at whether Simpson should continue as coach is this one. Is he the best development coach for the club's youngsters going forward in what are likely to be two very challenging years ahead? Not only is he... Not only is Simpson a premiership coach, he's been a very good coach. He's had them in finals in six of nine years. But he flirted with his own form on Saturday against Carlton. Point three on Fremantle. The Dockers have now lost 16 of 18 first quarters this season and at least three of those first-term lapses have been pivotal in the final outcome, which means Fremantle's inability to get started in matches is potentially the difference between 7-11 and 15th on the ladder and 10-8 and a spot inside the eight. This is not about trawling through various species of, of psychobabble until Justin Longmuir finds something his players tap into. This is about accepting the most likely cause. When the game is hottest, when the players are freshest, Fremantle's players, young though many are, are found wanting. Skill errors gifted Sydney their 25-point quarter-time lead on Saturday night. Too many Dockers fumble, miss targets or choose bad options when the game is really hot and the opposition is coming really hard. If Longmuir does nothing else between now and the end of the season, he needs to sort out who can and can't cope with serious AFL heat. Those that become part of the best 22 and those that can't become either depth or discards. This might take all of this year to sort out, but it can't be allowed to continue into next year. Point four, one thing I hope Justin Longmuir doesn't get uh, gun shy on between now and the end of the year is the willingness to embrace faster ball movement. The Dockers took the game on against Sydney. They messed it up a bit but they were always likely, even when they came back at the Swans, to give up enough chances for Sydney to score 
to allow Sydney to stay safely ahead. It doesn't matter. The rules of the game dictate that faster ball movement is the way forward, is what the rules were designed to create. And really, all Craig McRae has done at Collingwood has looked at what the rules were designed to do and done it. Any other approach is just swimming against the tide. Frio fans might be frustrated, but they should be happy the Dockers tried fast footy at the weekend and it worked well enough to have them on even terms with the Swans after quarter time. Hopefully, Longmuir has the will to keep trying it and coaches it and drills it all next pre-season. Give us your thoughts. You can have your say on the Temperate Bedshed text line on 0487 736 736 or you can call us on the open line on 13 12 55. I'm going to put four names to you, Eagles fans, and thanks to Izuzu Utes, and you can live your own way in the Izuzu MUX seven-seater. Here are four questions on four of your greatest players to four-wheel drive you to work today. Do these players go or do they stay? Player one is Shannon Hearn. He's 35. He's played 331 games. He is out of contract. Coach Adam Simpson has declared him near the end and very old in recent press conferences. My take, I think the Eagles face a series of really tough calls at the end of this season. I think they will exempt their first and second year players from scrutiny and give them more time. Every player older than that is going under the microscope with a handful of obvious exceptions like Oscar Allen. When you're going that hard and it's likely that eight to ten players are going to pay with their spot on the list, you have to get the easy call right and Hearn is the easy call. He's the oldest player on the list by a couple of years. He's played 11 of 18 games this season. He's been injured a couple of times and had to be rested a couple of times. Get the easy call right. Player two, Luke Shuey. 33, 247 games out of contract. Before the weekend, there were murmurings he'd be given a fresh one-year deal on low money. Now he is injured again. Shuey's soft tissue issues started in 2020. That is four seasons ago now. Since then, he has managed 46 of 80 games and he missed 15 of 22 games in 2021. He's missed nine of West Coast 18 games this season and he's been subbed out of three other games. My verdict... I know there are two schools of thought on Shuey and the school of thought that the club's younger players will benefit from having his leadership around is real and that he could be an on-field coach in the games that he does play. But what do you tell the youngster that gets yo-yoed in and out of the team whenever Luke is fit enough to play? And are you going to continue to claim bad luck with injury if you re-sign a bloke who was a pretty good chance to spend a fair portion of the year injured? It's a tough call, but the right call is for Shuey to go now. Player three, Nick Natanui. He's 33, 213 games. He has a 2024 contract. Nick hasn't played this year, but the Eagles believe he can play next year if he does the work. It will be left up to him. Now, I get that when the Eagles signed Nick Natanui in 2022 for 2023 and 2024, they were not to know that he would miss all of this season with a ruptured Achilles tendon. The view the Eagles have taken internally on that Nui is that while he has a chance to return to play, they will give him the chance. That he is too valuable to lose. And while there is hope, they will give him that chance. That Nui has told Channel 7 last week that he's going to give the rehab his best shot and that if he thinks 
he can return to somewhere near his best, then he's going to proceed with the rehab. But it sounds like a long shot, doesn't it? Nick played eight games last year. A lot of them hurt. He hasn't played at all this year. A ruckman who has played eight games in two seasons, who turns 34 next year with two bad knees and a rebuilt Achilles tendon. Is it a good bet or not? I would argue it's not a good bet. Andrew Gaff. He's 31. He's played 270 games. He's contracted until the end of 2024. He's rallied in the last two weeks after being dropped to the sub role against Richmond. I'll give Gaff his due on that. I thought he was done. I think most of us thought he was done a couple of weeks ago. He's fought really hard to reclaim a spot in the best 22 and play two of his best games for the season against Richmond and Carlton. He was certainly one of West Coast's better players against Carlton on the weekend. But when you boil it down, Andrew Gaff is still not having big impact on games. Is he doing enough to keep a spot on the list, to keep a younger player out of the team? And if he's marginal, is it worth having the debate over a year's worth of contract to get him out. Does he stay or does he go? Izuzu Utes, and you can live your own way in the Izuzu D-Max. We're going to talk to former Matilda and SEN commentator Jenna McCormack about the Women's World Cup. And, of course, a massive game for Australia coming up tomorrow night in Brisbane against Nigeria. We'll touch base with Tristan Lavalette, a massive fifth test coming up. Even though we've retained the Ashes, I suspect there are moral bragging rights on the line in the fifth test at the Oval. We will discuss that with Tristan Lavalette from ESPN Crick Info. How will Australia line up? Some interesting selection conundrums for them. We'll talk to Scott Sattler about matters NRL later in the show. And uh, got an interesting deep dive for you later today, thanks to Izuzu Utes. We're going to talk about AFL fixturing and whether there might be a new model in the pipeline that brings greater integrity to the AFL fixturing system. Uh, There's been a lot going on, of course, at the World Swimming Titles in Fukuoka, Japan. In Japan, Australia had their biggest ever single night at a World Championship with four gold medals on Sunday. Of course, the, uh, the fourth test at Old Trafford got rained out and finished in a draw, I think. Pretty sure I heard... English commentators moaning and groaning about something in the background over the past few days. Hopefully that stops with the start of the fifth test. Um, So I want to make these points, thanks to Izuzu Utes, about that test. Here are four points to four-wheel drive you to work. Point one, this is not a dead rubber. Not only does England have the chance to tie the series... Not only does Australia have the chance to decisively win the Series 3-1, but because of the constant whining from England when things haven't gone their way in this series, there is a significant moral victory to be had by one of the two teams in this Test match. The Poms have clearly invented a new scoring mechanism in cricket which hasn't officially come into effect yet because they keep on talking like they are ahead when they're actually behind. The Aussies won the first two tests fair and square. England won the third test fair and square. Rain denied them in the fourth. That makes the scoreline 2-1. The Ashes might have already been reclaimed, but this is anything but a dead rubber. Point two, 
it sounds like David Warner is going to play again. I'm fascinated by the mindset of this Australian team when it comes to Warner. He has been a great player, but he's 36. He's now reached 53 times in his last 29 innings. And the selectors have contorted their brains sufficiently on his selection in the team that they now give him a tick for performance when he makes 30-odd. Oh, he looked good. Oh, he took the attack to the English. Yep, and then he gets out. If we look at what our issue been, has been in the last two tests, it is the failure to make enough runs, which in turn has left the free-swinging English batting order wailing away at us without much pressure on them. The whole point of batting is to make runs, and Warner hasn't made many for a long time now. Point three, Todd Murphy has to play in this test. Leaving the spinner out of the fourth test meant the Aussies went away from a tried and true formula that has taken us to the World Test Championship. We always have a specialist spinner in the team. The omission of Murphy at Old Trafford reeked of a messed up mindset that we just had to bat for long enough to escape with a draw, which in turn helped England get on the front foot and attack us whenever play was possible in between the rain showers at Old Trafford. Time to get back to a formula that serves at us best. And point four, as part of that formula, we play one all-rounder, just one. That means if Mitchell Marsh isn't fit enough to bowl in this game, then Cameron Green has to play. Our bowlers are tired. There's even talk that Michael Nessa or Sean Abbott might be pulled into the team to give us one fresh body. What that tells you is that Pat Cummins is... Uh, what that tells you is Pat Cummins needs to freshen up and Green or someone needs to bowl some overs. If, if Marsh can't bowl, the selectors have a decision to make on whether he can play as a specialist batsman. Does his form warrant that? There's an argument to suggest it does. And that brings us back to the earlier point about Warner. The notion that Green could be left out for lack of form while Warner continues to play because of whatever form he's shown, that's uh, pretty amazing. And the other thought that they will continue to play Warner because they don't want to disrupt the batting order while completely overhauling the bowling attack tells you the match committee on this Ashes trip Stop thinking clearly and probably stop thinking clearly about two tests ago. We'll be talking about cricket to Tristan Lavalette later in the show. Get his thoughts on this test match. But what do you think? You can have your say on the temper at Bedshed text line on 0487 736 736. Or you can give us a call on the open line on 13 12 55. On to our two football teams. It's been a bleak old season in WA. Here are some footy thoughts, thanks to Izuzu, and you can live your own way in the Izuzu D-Max. Four points to four-wheel drive you to work this morning. Point one, the Eagles-North Melbourne clash this weekend at Optus Stadium highlights the problem of the AFL's fixture and its equalisation policies. This match features the two teams whose seasons have been so bad they desperately need a win, but they might be better off losing. If the Eagles find a way to beat North, their fans might love it for a week, but it would put them just win away, one win away from overtaking the hapless Kangaroos on the AFL ladder, which might cost them the number one draft pick, which costs them access to Vic Country gun Harley Reid. That has the potential to affect them for the next 10 years. Point two, further to that first point, there is talk that the AFL will look at rejigging its current fixture to make it an 18-round fixture where you play everyone once 
and then your crosstown rival twice. And then the competition splits into three lots of six. And the top six play for spots in the top four. The middle six play for spots in the top eight. And the bottom six play for draft picks. It eliminates the chances of clubs tanking. Is this a better system? I'm going to get to this in Duff's Deep Dive. Thanks to... Thanks to Izuzu Utes later in the show, but what do you think? You can share your thoughts with us. Point three, further to the tanking point, there is a strong suggestion that North Melbourne will receive priority draft picks at the end of this season from the AFL. If the AFL does that, it will be making a decision looking backwards, not forwards. They'll be saying that North Melbourne has been bad for too long. Because if you look at North Melbourne's midfield, a midfield that includes Jai Simpkin, Luke Davies-Uniak, Will Phillips, Harry Sheasel, and George Wardlaw, and you project three years forward, if you offer me that midfield in three years over what West Coast midfield might look like in three years' time, I'm taking North Melbourne's midfield every day of the week. Why should they be entitled to AFL assistance? I don't think West Coast should be, and I certainly don't think North Melbourne should be either. Point four... I sincerely hope Fremantle aren't about to park the bus this year and limp home over the past month and a half of what has been a very disappointing season. There is much to be gained in this last month and a half. There is also much to be lost, both individually and collectively, at Fremantle. They've sent Sean Darcy and Nat Fife off for surgery. There are a number of other players at the Dockers who look like they're playing a bit sore, but they need to bear down hard and get something out of these last few games. Otherwise, they're going to start the season next year under a lot of pressure from the coach down.